the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Tuesday, January 31, 2023, which means it's the day before we all have to start saying February. Everyone says it wrong. It's not February. It's February. So if you want to practice today, it's a good day to practice. Get ready. We only have to do it for 28 days, though, right? It's not a leap year, is it? 28 or 29 days. Less than 30 days. Someone, and I'm trying to recall who, said that when the New York Times writes up or admits something we conservatives have been saying for a long time, for example, their long piece on how diversity, equity, and inclusion or DIE training doesn't work and may actually create more racial resentments, their piece on that from a few weeks ago that we cited yesterday, when they publish pieces like that, it's not a concession or an admission we conservatives were right. It is rather a signal, a semaphore, that it is okay for the left to concede some points about it here and there, that it is no longer infradignatari to talk about. It is no longer an issue over which people should be banned or canceled or censored. With that in mind, today, the headline in The New York Times is this, quote, Students lost one-third of a school year to pandemic study fines. Learning delays and regressions were most severe in developing countries and among children from low-income backgrounds, and students still haven't caught up. Close quote. Now, of course it wasn't due to or because of the pandemic. It was all a result of the response to the, band- to the pandemic. And, of course, people like Hugh Hallman, Dennis Prager and Bill Bennett and Heather MacDonald and I will say sarcastically or perhaps sardonically, if only someone would have pointed the possibility or probability of this happening out two years ago. Well, we did. And at the time we warned of education failure and mental health crises for our youth based on all we did to them during COVID, we were shamed and canceled and censored. In fact, when education failure, what some people call learning loss, was brought up to the head of the largest teachers' union in the country in Los Angeles. The head of that union, Cecily Mayart Cruz, said this, quote, Our kids didn't lose anything. It's okay that our babies may not have learned their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup. Well, you know damn well that that's not true. They don't know the difference between a riot and a protest. They don't even know the difference between a peaceful protest and a riot. But regardless, I'm sure none of that is what most parents think schools are for. And learning loss or academic failure was dismissed. Mental health was dismissed. Now it's here. And we find ourselves in an irony of American history, if I can borrow from Reinhold Niebuhr. As the most advanced and wealthy nation in the history of the world, at our most advanced and wealthy moment, with more access and easy access to wisdom and knowledge at our fingertips than ever before, 
we see higher drug use, higher mental health problems, lowered life expectancy, and declining academic outcomes. These things are unheard of in advanced or advancing developed or developing countries. But we did it. We got there. Now, today, the New York Times makes it kosher to talk of academic loss. From the New York Times, quote, Thomas Kane, the faculty director of the Center for Education, excuse me, Thomas Kane, the faculty director of the Center for Education Policy Research at Harvard, who has studied school interruptions in the United States, reviewed the global analysis. Without immediate and aggressive intervention, he said, learning loss will be the longest lasting and most inequitable legacy of the pandemic. May I repeat this professor from Harvard? Learning loss will be the longest lasting and most inequitable legacy of the pandemic. Close quote. What we did to our youth will be the longest lasting and most inequitable legacy of the pandemic. I want that drilled in. Not COVID. What we did and the slipstream we created. Again, if only people had warned of this, or more accurately, if only people warned of this weren't shamed, denounced, and censored. Let's go a little further here, because academic declines are not the only problems here. From four days ago, how many headlines did you see disseminating this? Four days ago, from the National Institute of Mental Health, a division of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, something we used to be told we had to pay attention to. A new report, brand new report, four days old. The headline, quote, COVID-19 pandemic associated with worse mental health and accelerated brain development in adolescence, close quote. May I read from the report, quote, the coronavirus pandemic caused significant stress and uncertainty. This was particularly true for young people who faced school shutdowns, severed social channels, and amplified stress at home and in their communities. Given the unprecedented disruption caused by that pandemic, it is crucial to understand its impact on health and development, especially among adolescents. What they measured were pre-COVID students and post-COVID students, and here's the conclusion they reached. I'm quoting from this report. Quote, the two groups differed significantly in both their mental health and brain development. Compared to the pre-pandemic group, adolescents assessed after the pandemic shutdowns reported more symptoms of anxiety and depression and greater internalizing problems. Their brains showed thinning of the cortex, which helps execute mental processes like planning and self-control and reduced volume in the hippocampus and amygdala, amygdala which are involved in accessing memories and regulating responses to fear and stress, respectively. Moreover, still quoting, based on their cortical and subcortical features, the post-shutdown group had older brain ages than adolescents assessed before the pandemic. Their their brains showed neuroanatomical features more typical of older people or those who experienced chronic stress or adversity in childhood. Thus... This study shows an association between the COVID-19 pandemic and impaired mental health and maladaptive brain development among adolescents. Close quote. Understand what they're saying, please. We didn't just alter children's mental health. We changed the physicality of their brains.
we changed their brains. But at least they know the difference between a riot and a coup, huh? Which, in all frankness, they don't. Not as lasting knowledge, anyway, but what we did was lasting damage. And again, it was all so unnecessary, at least to those who didn't think a health crisis should be weaponized for political purposes. It's a sick society that abuses its children, this way or any other way. Physical abuse or Now we have the concatenation of both, physical and mental abuse. The physicality of the brain was abused. And it is a sick society that uses children to soothe adult anxieties. Children are not for adult use. They are to be placed in the care and nurture of adults, not to be used by adults. And it is a sick society that used the playgrounds of our children to wage the political battles of adults. And it is a sick society that races, stampedes to do all this without a pang of conscience. And it is a sick society that with $25 trillion of gross domestic product that spends $800 billion on education each year and over $4 trillion on health care each year sees declining life expectancy but rising drug use and rising youth mental health, health problems and declining academic outcomes. We weren't sick or a sick society in 2019. We may very well be today. The left has made an ardency and a fetish of our politics and policies so important that we are now engaging in Munchausen syndrome by proxy on our nation's youth and again without a pang of conscience about it. Youth leagues, sacrifices are no strange things or strangers to Maoist or Stalinist or Islamist movements. I just never thought I'd see it here. But then again, a lot has changed here over the past few years. And all I want us to be is a normal country in a normal time that treats children and adults at their age-appropriate levels with age-appropriate themes and messaging and behavior. I hope it's not too late. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show debate over in the Republican caucus over whether to remove Ilan Omar, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, from House Foreign Relations Committee. Unlike, as John Shattuck was teaching us last week, unlike the um, select committees, these uh, permanent standing committees require the vote of the entire House, which in this case means uh, a majority uh, a majority vote, which in this case means all of the Republicans, except you can afford to lose two or three. And you know who's wobbly on this, who said he's not sure how he's going to vote? Matt Gates. Matt Gates says he's not sure how he's going to vote, which means that he was harder on Kevin McCarthy than Ilan Omar. This is a case of conservative Stockholm syndrome. The um, best piece I've seen on this is from Mark Tiasen at the Washington Post. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is 100 percent right to remove Ilan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee as he's removed Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the House Intelligence Committee. 
Omar is an anti-Semite who has no business serving on a committee that helps set U.S. policy abroad. And Schiff and Swalwell are conspiracy theorists who abuse their position on the Intelligence Committee to falsely claim that they had seen secret evidence that President Donald Trump conspired with Russia to steal the 2016 election, which was a lie. None of them deserve access to our nation's intelligence or secrets. Omar's Omar's record of virulent anti-Semitism is itself disqualifying. In March 2019, she declared politicians who support Israel, quote, push for allegiance to a foreign country, accusing Israel supporters in Congress of dual loyalty, which then Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel, who is a Democrat, correctly called a vile slur. But then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi allowed her to remain on the committee. A few months later, Omar introduced a resolution in Congress comparing the boycott of Israel to boycotting Nazi Germany. Again, Democrats did nothing. In September of 2021, Omar and her anti-Israel allies used a potential government shutdown to force Pelosi to remove $1 billion in funding for the Iron Dome missile defense system from an emergency spending bill. The Iron Dome is a purely defensive system that protects civilians from Hamas rockets, which means Omar wants to shut down the government to let terrorists indiscriminately kill Jews. Democratic leaders had to arrange a separate vote to approve the funding to get around her attempt to stop it. Again, there were no consequences. Then, in the summer of 2021, Omar compared the U.S. and Israel to the Taliban, and Hamas, forcing House Democratic leaders to issue a joint statement declaring, quote, drawing false equivalencies between democracies like the U.S. and Israel and groups that engage in terrorism like Hamas and the Taliban foments prejudice, close quote. But instead of any punishment, Pelosi still praised her as a, quote, unquote, valued member of her caucus. Valued member? Omar has said U.S. support for Israel is all about the Benjamins, direct quote, insinuating that Jews by American influence. She shared an anti-Israel cartoon on social media that was drawn by the second-place winner of Iran's Holocaust denial cartoon contest. She goes to Iran cartoon contests to depict Israel. And, of course, she supports the BDS movement, which seeks the economic destruction of the state of Israel. While giving Omar a pass, Pelosi made a show of stripping Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments. Now, McCarthy is using that precedent to do what Pelosi should have done years ago in stripping Omar of her committee assignments. He is also right to remove Schiff and Swalwell, who misled Americans into believing they had secret evidence. Trump conspired with Russia when no evidence existed. Schiff repeatedly claimed his intelligence committee had unearthed, quote, plenty of evidence of collusion or conspiracy. On Meet the Press, he declared, quote, I can't go into the particulars But there is more than circumstantial evidence now. While on ABC News, he said that Trump's Russia conspiracy is, quote, of a size and scope probably beyond Watergate, close quote. A few months later, special counsel Robert Mueller announced the evidence, quote, did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government. That's not all. Schiff actively spread the lie that Disclosure of compromising information on Hunter Biden's laptop was part of a Russian information operation. Quote, clearly, the origins of the whole smear are from the Kremlin, close quote. That's what he said on CNN. They weren't. He abused his position on the Intelligence Committee by knowing 
by letting journalists and the American people know he had access to information they didn't, and he lied about that information, inventing it in a way that they could never question him or see his sources. Swalwell has even has been even more irresponsible. In an interview with NMSNBC, he was asked by Chris Matthews, quote, do you believe that President Trump right now has been an agent of the Russians? He replied, quote, yes, there's more evidence that he is. Matthews cut in and asked, agent? Swalwell continued, quote, yes, and I think all the arrows point in that direction, and I haven't seen a single piece of evidence that he's not. An incredulous Matthews pressed him yet again, quote, an agent like in the 1940s where you had people who were reds, to use an old term like that, in other words, working for a foreign power. Swalwell replied, quote, he's working on behalf of the Russians. Yes, close quote. When CNN questioned this claim, Swalwell declared, quote, he certainly acts on Russia's behalf, and it's a claim from someone who also worked as a prosecutor for seven years and had the responsibility of looking at evidence and putting it before a jury, close quote. Ironically, while Swalwell was pushing the theory that Trump was an agent of a hostile foreign power, he had been informed by the FBI that he, Swallow, Swalwell, was having a relationship with a suspected agent of a hostile power, alleged Chinese spy Christine Fang. When Representative Stephen King wondered publicly why white nationalist and white supremacist terms had suddenly become offensive, Republicans stripped him of his committee assignments. Republicans did that to one of their own, but Democrats never policed their own rakes in the same way. So now it's left to Republicans to do it for them. Someone was asking me earlier today what I meant by saying conservative Stockholm syndrome and trying to explain Matt Gates's efforts to go wobbly on this issue. And I said, well, I have a chapter of it in my book, American Greatness. It's a real problem. Conservatives who aren't quite sure that they're right, conservatives who buy into the liberal and mainstream media narrative too often, and conservatives who want to be liked by what they perceive as all the right people who, in fact, tend to be all the wrong people. Can't get over that line. Matt Gates was harder on Kevin McCarthy than Ilan Omar. That's inexcusable. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is, as Tina's as Tina Turner says, simply the best. He is the president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. Great radio show every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The Word on Wealth. John, how are you today? Fantastic, Seth. How about yourself? I'm doing just fine. Great. Thank you. Explain to me this Fed move. The Federal Reserve uh, expected to slow rate hiking to a quarter point, but Headlines say it's still unrelenting in its battle with inflation. Tell me what's going on here. Well, a couple things. Number one, first of all, we, this is the last day of trading for January. Yep. And the S&P 500 uh, gained 5% for the month. This okay. was the best month in four years. So Great. we're having a nice recovery uh, You know, after last year's obvious uh, downturn. So uh, there, there could be some you know, brighter spots on the horizon here. But when it comes to the Fed, I mean, we've been talking about this, uh, obviously, for quite some yeah, time now. Sure. As, yeah, yeah. As we know that, uh, you know, the Fed has been uh, on an interest rate raising uh, craze here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the thought is, is that 
you know, we're starting to see signs of inflation is beginning to slow down. Uh, maybe not in everything, but generally speaking. And so the thought would be is, is that the Fed, it states in this particular article I looked at today, uh, that the Fed's likely to raise a quarter percent. Yeah, that's a little uh, less than what they've been doing, right? A little less, yes, mm-hmm. yes. They've been at three quarters of a percent, yeah, right. to a half a percent. Right. Now we're, we're, we're thinking a quarter percent. Yeah. But the, t- the tone is really what I think a lot of people are looking for because okay. uh, the Fed doesn't want to give anyone false harp, hope, right? They're thinking, hey, th- inflation is still there. Uh, we haven't uh, completely you know, overcome the challenges that we're faced with. So we want to make sure that uh, whatever we do, we don't want to give the perception that everything is fine at this point. Right. And so they're going to pr- most likely raise a quarter percent is the thought. Uh, and if that's the case, it's most likely already priced into the stock market. Uh, but we're also battling corporate earnings right now. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a number of companies again reporting today that layoffs are coming. Yeah. Uh, so there's still a lot of, uh, you know, undulation and, you know, movement uh, with a lot of these companies out there right now. So there's there's definitely uncertainty. And, and the consumer spending stuff is not looking wonderful, right? Cons- a lot of projections that consumer spending yeah. is slowing, yes. Yeah. And uh, ad revenue from some of these big companies, Snap reported today, and uh, they uh, are getting punished after hours in trading. It was down about 13 to 14%. Uh, because they're uh, not even giving guidance for for the first quarter of 2023 because they already are stating, hey, business is slowing down and we're really unsure and unable to give uh, what we believe is an accurate guidance uh, for the first quarter. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I, I think there was some distortions too on the consumer spending end because of the government stum- stimulus stuff. You know, uh, I think true. there were some spending sprees that we're seeing maybe a rubber band effect mm-hmm. on. Very true, right, Seth? When everyone was at home, yeah, you know, and you just think of this, the companies such plus as cheap Zoom. credit too, right? Yes, yeah. yes. A lot of people now are starting to feel the. You know, they had the zero, uh, you know, percent yeah. on those credit cards. Yeah. Now that's all ending. Uh, those interest payments are starting. Uh, people are looking for alternative ways to try to pay down some of the debt that they accumulated during COVID. So there are some challenges, and it's going to take a while to to get through them. But ultimately, uh, again, if you're a long-term type of an investor, you know, we look at things on a long-term basis. If you're in this for, in this for the right reason and have that time on your side. Uh, there's some opportunity out there still uh, for your portfolio to recover. And again, if people need help with that, that's what we do for clients every day, right? And I encourage people to reach oh, out to no, us. Go to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. GrandCanyonPlanning.com. I was thinking when you were talking, we were talking about that easy credit and the and the stimulus from COVID. The phrase "There's no such thing as a free lunch." You know where that comes from? I, I, I was I, I love looking up phrases. It comes from the no such thing as a free lunch. Evidently comes from a tradition a couple centuries back here where saloons, uh, yeah, uh, you know, pubs and saloons uh, provided a free lunch to, to, to the people who would purchase at least one drink. Oh, very nice. Yeah, <laughs> that's where the free lunch came from. And then when inflation came, yeah. it, was, it was two. It was two drinks, and then it was two drinks, and the and the and the plate got smaller and smaller. Yeah, and the price went up. Yeah, the price went up, and we got blue plate specials. Oh, right? that's 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 great. Kind that's, of fun, huh? That is very, very much <laughs> so. Yes, you. there's your culture part to that's the economy it. today. Very Thanks, good. John. Thank you, Seth. Hey, I owe you five dollars too. I won't forget that. You do owe me five dollars. You yes. know what my dad said about? Let's, he said, "I'd rather someone owe." me the money than be cheated out of it.
Oh, there you go. Or, <laughs> or, or to owe someone else. <laughs> I'd rather have that. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Very good. John. Be good. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA Typical and Investment Advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC, and not affiliated. Thank you so much, Seth. Talk tomorrow. You betcha. I am Seth Liebson, 602 We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. I need to do this. Remember that acrid, is that the right word? Acrid, acrid speech Joe Biden gave um, in Georgia in early 2021 about whether if we didn't pass Nancy Pelosi's election reform bill, we would be as Republicans the party, if we didn't federalize elections with his bill and her legislation, we Republicans would be joining the party of George Wallace, and Bull Connor, and Jefferson Davis, all of whom were Democrats. Remember that? Remember how they were talking about voter suppression in Georgia? Do you remember when in latter part of 2021, President Biden denounced the state of Georgia? as a racist disgrace when it's Republican-controlled state government and acted on election reform law that they insisted would constitute voter suppression. Jim Crow 2.0, remember that phraseology? Jim Garrity writes, but 2022, that next year, last year, brought record turnout in both the primaries and the general midterm elections. And the state's African-Americans reported great satisfaction with and trust in their voting experience and higher voting numbers, all without the Republicans passing the bill the Democrats wanted. Now, Joe Biden wants Georgia to vote early in the presidential primary process, and just about every major Southern Democrat wants Atlanta, which is in Georgia, to host the party's next national convention. Somehow, in a very short period of time, Georgia went from too racist to host the 2021 Major League baseball major league baseball all-star game remember that they boycotted georgia in 2021 for race reasons to deserving to host the next year's democratic national convention imagine that and with the republican governor and legislature in the minds of democrats jim writes the state of georgia is either an oppressive racist hellhole or the bright shining future of american politics depending on the results of the last election apparently Georgia is now good again because NBC News reports that a lot of elected Democrats from Virginia to Louisiana are urging their party to hold the 2024 National Convention in Atlanta. Here's the story. Southern Democrats are banding together to urge President Joe Biden to select Atlanta for the 2024 Democratic National Convention, according to a letter obtained by NBC News, arguing the choice would solidify the party's gains in Georgia and demonstrate commitment to the entire region. Atlanta is one of three finalists to host the convention, along with New York City and Chicago. Houston was also in the running until recently. Its mayor has now joined Atlanta's bid, adding his name to the letter. The letter, sent Monday to Biden and Democratic National Committee Chair Jamie Harrison, is signed by more than 65 current and former Democratic senators, congressmen, governors, mayors, and legislators from a dozen southern states. By the way, that Jamie Harrison, the head of the DNC, He's the one who has twice said Republicans are the party of fascism, just so you know, and can keep track of 
you know, how civil the Democratic Party is. That's the chair of the Democratic National Convention, Jamie Harrison. Republicans are the party of fascism. Uh, the letter from those Democrats specifically cites the central role of African-Americans in the city's life as why it should be chosen over New York or Chicago. Quote, as the cultural and economic hub of black America, the city embodies the American dream in the 21st century. A nominating convention in the city of Atlanta will provide Joe Biden with a backdrop that reflects his personal values and embodies his vision for America. When President Biden visited Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta for Martin Luther King Jr. Day a few weeks back. Georgia senators and other top local party figures brought a full-page ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with a simple message, message in giant letters. Quote, President Biden, cement your legacy. Choose Atlanta. Recall that President Biden wants to make Georgia the fourth state to vote in the 2024 Democratic National Primaries behind South Carolina, New Hampshire, and the ahead of Iowa. You can be forgiven for having some whiplash here because just in 2021, President Biden called a sweeping elections bill signed into law in Georgia, Jim Crow in the 21st century, called it an atrocity. He said, quote, I am convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it is the most pernicious thing and makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. I mean, this is gigantic what they're trying to do, and it cannot be sustained, close quote. The law so terrible, such a racist abomination, as you know, as I said, that Major League Baseball determined that the All-Star game could not be played there, costing the state about $100 million in tourism revenue. Yeah. Remember what Biden said? Republicans in Georgia choose the wrong way, the undemocratic way. To them, too many people voting in a democracy is a problem, so they're putting up obstacles. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? But a funny thing did happen on the way to Election Day. Last year, under laws the Democrats said were designed to suppress African-American voters, Georgia had record turnout for the primary and record turnout for the midterms. A University of Georgia survey found that zero percent, may I repeat, zero percent of black respondents said their voting experience in Georgia was poor in 2022. Zero. Around 73 percent of black and white voters alike said their voting experience was excellent. In fact, the survey indicated that black voters had more faith in the counting of votes than white voters did. On election confidence, 94.3% of black Georgia voters said they were confident their vote was counted as they attended, and 79.7% said they were confident the state counted all votes as intended. For whites, it was 88 and 74, respectively, about five points lower in each case. As Nate Hochman concluded, quote, we have now accumulated a mind-boggling large body of evidence, not only that Georgia is not a voter suppression regime, but that it's actually one of the best-run states in the country when it comes from elections. I don't mean to keep beating this horse, except to repeat the notion that when Biden and the Democrats exercise their racial vocal cords and exercise their racial biceps and try and gaslight Republicans for being the party that the Democrats were known to be for decade after decade after decade for well over a century and making us look like the party of suppression and the, and the party of racism and bigotry. It's either not true 
or the reverse is true. It's either not true, they're making a mountain out of a molehill, as they did with that voting and election law in Georgia, or they're the ones who are being the racists themselves. They're the ones that are exercising racial, uh, what's the word I want here? Um, Not, um, yeah, they're the ones that are exercising racial division in this country. It's really shameful. It's really shameful what they do, and what they say and how they divide us. And then they wonder, after they divide us and turn us into extremes, they wonder why there's so little bipartisanship. How do you, how do you meet in caucus and negotiate with people who think you're a fascist and a racist bigot? How do you do it? I, I, I'm not very good at predicting where the Democratic Party will go unless I'm talking about their, uh, their general, uh, you know, the way the, – the, what, what's the syllogism? They are, their dialectic, their usual dialectic, which is um, deny, then de- denounce the criticism, and then mandate what they denied. That's the dialectic. You saw that with – you know, sexualization and CRT in the schools and all kinds of things. But I'm pretty sure they're not going to go to Chicago for their Democratic convention. I'm pretty sure. You look at the streets of Chicago, 60% rise in violent crime over the last year there. 60%. Benjamin Weingarten, I think he'll be with us on uh, Friday he wrote the book on Ilan Omar. He also has a great essay in Newsweek on an issue that a lot of us have forgotten. Uh, we've talked about it here a little bit, probably not enough, which was that leak of the Dobbs decision out of the Supreme Court. And he has a great piece over at Newsweek on it, a supreme disgrace at the high court. And while I'm mentioning Newsweek, I want to mention, too, I had the opportunity to um, – the editor, Josh Hammer, interviewed me. Uh, for his podcast on Newsweek uh, on all kinds of things, uh, history and direction of the conservative movement, where I think it needs to go, where I think it needs to center. We talked a lot about drugs. Um, it it was really got a great reception on social media. So if you want to hear it, uh, it's uh, jo- Josh Hammer's Newsweek podcast this week, a long interview. I mean, maybe we'll play a little bit of it in the next hour if you want. Um We'll see. But you can get it through uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or if you just go online and type in Newsweek Podcast, go to the Josh Hammer podcast. He's a really good interviewer. And I think I might reverse reverse roles with him and have him on maybe in the next day or two and ask him about the conservative movement. He's a real leader in the modern conservative movement. Great scholar, too. I mean, gosh, he's, he's just a real, real brainiac. But uh, – Kind of an interesting issue coming up that uh, under the category of this is why we can't have nice things. State representative uh, here in Arizona, Kwong Nguyen, he's the head of the Judiciary Committee. He's sponsoring legislation to get tougher on fentanyl. You'd think that would have 100 percent support and agreement, but we can't have nice things because it doesn't have 100 percent support and agreement. Democrats and few Republicans are kind of looking for ways, looking for ways to not pass this legislation. He'll join me. Gosh, he's got a hell of a story. Refugee from Vietnam in 1975. 
He'll join me at the top of the next hour in just a few minutes. Don't go away. You don't want to miss that. Doing important work. So we will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 